Today is the April 3rd, 2022 meeting of Hope Bible Church. Steve Hogan's message is titled, John 4 and the Gospel Part 2. If you would like to support our sermon audio ministry, please click the Give button on our sermon audio homepage. Thank you. Good morning. Great to see all of you here on this Lord's Day. It is good that we can be together. Indeed, as we know, we have the freedom to meet together in this country, these United States. I was reading the newsletter just yesterday as the TMAI, the as an organization that works with the Honduras group that we support. And in it, talked about five different Christians who were killed down in Mariupol. And so uh, we need to keep praying uh, for them. Uh, it's it's a definitely a very, very difficult time. In, in my backyard, I have one solitary sunflower plant. It's got like five flowers on it. And I don't know if you heard, but, but Ukraine uh, is the number one producer of sunflower oil in the world. So I assume they must have the most sunflower plants. So I see that plant. So I got to keep praying for the people in Ukraine. Little story, it was three or four days ago, I'm not sure, Monday or Tuesday, I was just driving someplace in a neighboring house a few doors down. He had a little bucket, a five-gallon bucket, white bucket, and he was picking up sticks in his yard. Well, that's good, picking up the sticks. That's a nice thing to do. And so then on Friday, you know, we had a pretty good-sized storm here, and you know what I'm going to say. Pretty, good, pretty big storms can result in what? Well, there's a big oak tree in that yard, and one of the branches, a huge branch, probably this thick at the base where it joined the tree up about 20 feet, is down, just covered the street. I said, whoa, whoa. As I drove by, I saw there was a lot of rot, decay, at that juncture point. Then yesterday I was going by, and I saw that another branch at that juncture point was hit back across the back fence. I said, whoa. The lesson is very simple. A lot of people in life, and I'm talking to really the non-Christians, are picking up sticks. But they don't realize that that whole tree is rotten, and it fell over. And so this morning I drive by, and the whole yard, because now they've got it cut down because it was a danger. I mean, you know, now they have it cut down to that juncture point, but the, the yard's covered with logs, and huge logs, and all kinds of branches. But that's why we are here. Because we don't want to just pick up sticks here. That's not our purpose. We want to get to the heart of the matter because there are real problems in people's lives, and it goes back to the gospel. The gospel of John, no doubt, without question, is the best book in the Bible that talks about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're taking some time to look at the gospel of John. It does contain important truths that then enable us to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. What you see in John, is particularly from John chapter 1 through 12, is primarily about the gospel, the saving gospel message. There's, there's truths for Christians, of course, that are there. But, but the truths relate to the gospel. You get to John 13, it talks about the Last Supper. Then John 14 through 17 is, is information focused on discipleship for the Christians. And then John chapters 19 through the chapter talk primarily then about the uh, death and resurrection of the Lord, suffering death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So that's it. So my purpose here in these few weeks is to go over the gospel. Uh, and I'm not exactly how far I'm going to go. I've just been led and in, encouraged and intrigued by what's, what's in this for us. And so 
Last time we looked at uh, John 4, got through part of it. I just want to review the eight lessons we looked at. Uh, and the first one is that we're to love everyone, no matter who they are. We're not to discriminate against anyone. We are not to be racist in any way, shape, or form. Number two, we learned that we're not to be afraid of anyone because we as Christians, we have the truth of God and we have the spirit of God. Three, we learned the importance of one-on-one conversations with people of being personal with, with people. Four, we, we learned that we need to share the gospel even though we're tired at times, even though we don't feel like it. Fifth, we learned that we're to make the most of our opportunities, the situations that God gives us, and God gives every one of us here opportunities to share the gospel. Next, we learned that salvation is a free gift from God. It's nothing we can work for. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. And next we learn this, an important one, that being saved means we have living water, this spiritual water from God, that only this spiritual water from God, this living water, can be that which really sustains us, strengthens us, energizes us, encourages us as Christians. Finally, we learn that sin is what keeps, what prevents a person from having this living water. Of course, that relates to the person who's an unbeliever, but even as Christians, if there is sin, an active sin in your heart and soul, you will not then experience the living water that God wants you to have on a daily basis. So there's much more in John 4, so let's turn to John 4, 19. I want to read a, a section of verses here. John chapter 4, begin in verse 19. You can listen or read along. John four nineteen. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we, we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when, we, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot, went into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him, and meanwhile the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes a harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that there are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered in their labor. Now, I'm going to make one point here before we continue in this text, is that the God, John chapter 4 is definitely it gives a lot of important points about the gospel, but it's also very instructive as to how, as Christians, you know, we should share the gospel and, and things that can help us be more effective. So, so with that, we're going to go back here, uh, starting in verse 19, and and in understanding who Jesus is and that God sent him 
to this earth to die and pay for our sins is very, very important truths. Because only as we believe who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh, can we then believe what he did for us, that he died for us, and only then by his death can he save us from our sins. So, so much of John that is, is, is trying to prove this point of who Jesus is. And we see that it happens right here in this text. But I want to mention um, just a, a couple things here. First of all, verse 12 about what happens uh, with this woman and her learning. Verse 12 the woman asked if Jesus is greater than Jacob. And Jacob was one of the patriarchs, and he was the one who first had this well where they're not drinking from. So she's wondering, who is this guy? Are you greater than the patriarchs? Then in verse 19, the woman wonders if Jesus is a prophet, for he knew exactly how many husbands that she had had, and now that she was actually living with a man who was not her husband. So is this, is this person a prophet? Then verse 25 and 26, Jesus tells her he's the Messiah, the Christ the one that was to come. And she had heard, as we read in the text, that, that the Messiah was a coming, and now he's actually telling her that he is that person, and so here she is, and the Messiah is with her. So you see this progression of what he's trying to help her understand in her mind. Verses 28 to 30, the woman goes back into town. She's talking to some, some, some of the men there. She says, well, is this person the Messiah? So she's wondering. So you see how God is working in her heart in this whole passage, helping her understand this truth that who Jesus is and what he did for us is so, so incredibly important. Many other verses in John, I'll just mention a few. John three thirteen to 16, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that, he's, that he is God, that he's the son of man, and that he's the one who died on the cross to pay for our sins. But look then at John chapter 5, if you have your Bible open there, 19 and 23. 19 to just 21. Therefore Jesus answered, was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son, shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. That passage, and we're going to look at this more, I think uh, next week, explains or makes us realize that this Jesus is not just a man. He's talking about God being his father, and by him saying that God is his father means he is his son, that he is God himself. That's the point. John chapter 5, verse 8, go back a few verses. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk in the story there if he had just healed this person. And what we see, of course, in this passage here, John 6 talks about how Jesus healed thousands of people and many, many other examples of Jesus healing people. His miracles are proofs and evidence that he was not just a man, but he was also God in the flesh. The final point here, John 14 to 8. We'll turn there, John 14, 8 and 9. And you'll see this as you work your way through the Gospel of John. So many passages where he is making it clear that he was God in the flesh, which, of course, is the reason why the enemies of Jesus wanted to kill him because he said, they said he was blaspheming and wasn't, but indeed he was. Verse 8, Philip said to, the Lord, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That verse, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Pretty strong. Hey, I am God in the flesh. So that point is, is so, so important. And again, it is, it is one of the most important points of the gospel, that this Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Son of Man, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. 
The next point is this one. Salvation comes from the Jews. This woman's confused by the truth, and Jesus wants her to know that, 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 that the person who brings salvation, that is the Messiah, this is one then who is a Jew and who is descended from the Jews. You go back to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and we see there very clearly that, that it's through Abraham that the Messiah would come, and through Abraham, people would be blessed in both a physical and in a spiritual way. And then in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 are this list, that's the genealogy of Jesus, and again, evidence that Jesus is a Jew and is descended from Jews. Romans 9, 3 to 5 also tells us that Jesus is descended from the, the Jews. Revelation chapters 12, 1 and 2 talks about this woman, the woman represents the nation of Israel, and how Jesus then was descended, uh, of, was descended or came from this woman. So this, these verses make it clear that salvation doesn't come from any other person than Christ or any other religion but through the Jews. I mean, you can talk about the Buddhist religion, you can talk about the Hindu religion, you can talk about the Islamic religion or any other religion. Salvation for your sins only comes through Christ and only comes through the Jews. That's the point. Very, very important. And it's, it's just, again, proven time and time again through scriptures. The next major point from this text, and this is, this is really important, we'll spend a little time on, the primary result of being saved is that we're to worship God the Father. We're to glorify him. That, that is number, number one. Now, worshiping God, we see this in the text, isn't a matter of worshiping God in some place or in some building. Now, the, the woman refers to this mountain where they, the Samaritans, worshipped. And you have to understand that the Samaritans only believed that, that the Pentateuch, those first five chapters of the Bible, we said the Bible, uh, it w- was God's word. And it was from Deuteronomy 11, 29, uh, that, that verse that's, that basically pointed out, hey, this is Mount Gerizim, you guys would worship here. But they didn't go further enough, go to I think Second Samuel, we read and understand that God wanted the Jews to be ones who were worshiping in Jerusalem. And the whole Old Testament talks about Jerusalem. It's uh, the city mentioned more times than any other city in, in, the, in the whole Bible. And so anyway, Jesus, though, he said what? What do you say here in these texts? The time is coming when you're not going to worship in Jerusalem or, or Gerizim or any, any place. That's not it. And, and, of course, he was prophesying, he did this Luke 19, 21 and 23, three places, maybe even more, that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. Okay, And, of course, we know that happened. It was 70 AD. That's history. It's obvious from history that that took place. The point here is, is that worshiping God isn't a matter of worshiping him in some place. I mean, we can worship here in this building. We're here today. We are worshiping the Lord here. But it's not just worship in a building. You can worship him any time, any place. I grew up, and maybe some of you did too. You, you, this is a Catholic church. You walk in. There's two, two things that do right away if you're a good Catholic. First, you'll get a little dish. You'll get the holy water. You know, you do this kind of thing. That's the first thing you do. And it's called holy water because this is a holy place, and you want to make sure that you're as holy as you can be by taking this holy water and doing the sign of the cross. And then the second thing you do is what? Before you get in the pew, what do you do? Genuflect. Genuflect. Okay? What's the reason? Okay? You have to understand the Catholics, what they do. Their their building is a a holy building. You know why? Because they have this thing called the tabernacle. Usually it's made out of gold or some kind of material. It's under lock and key. And in the tabernacle is this thing called, called the Eucharist, which is, of course, this Bread, which they say there is the presence of Jesus. So when you go into the Catholic Church, there is the presence of Jesus. So you watch some old movie or something, and somebody walks into a Catholic Church, and he sits down there and prays. Why? They believe God is there. That's the point, you see. 
But we know that's not true. I mean, this building's empty. It's empty. Any Catholic church building is empty. It's empty. God isn't there, okay? God is present in us through the Spirit, and we understand that. But, but, but that's an important point here. I like Psalm 150. It says, praise God in the sanctuary. And then it says, praise God in the mighty expanse. What's that mean? Every place. The sanctuary and the mighty expanse. Every, every place. Next point related to this worship. True worshipers worship God in spirit and truth. And, of course, the word spirit here is small s. It's not worship it's referring to the Holy Spirit. It's referring to a person's spirit, his innermost spirit, his, his heart, his soul. And Jesus said that God is a spirit, and the way we worship a spirit is by our spirit. That's what he's saying. Worship is not a matter of, of worship is a matter of our heart, our soul being being affected and transformed in such a way that we can then worship him. Only believers can truly worship God. It's a transformation of our heart and soul, so we have a renewed spirit. We're a new creature in Christ, and then we can worship him. Worship isn't a matter of some ritual, ceremony, or sacrifice, none of that. Worship then must be that which starts in our spirit, in our soul, in our innermost thoughts. That's, that's, that's what he's saying here. And worship then must be based on the truth. It has to be. You have a lot of people out there, these people that are, say they're religious, and you read, and, and they're just teaching something false, and, and their religion is not based on the truth. Worship must be based on the truth, the truth about God and Christ, the truth that salvation comes through Christ. That's what it is. That's what he's saying. And we could say more about this word truth, but that's, in, in summary, what, what he's getting at here. Third, we see that God seeks worshipers. This is important. Now, we understand in the broader sense, and Psalm 148 talks about this, talks about how God wants the, the whole universe to be that which worships him, okay? The nature itself, and in, in, in that may not make sense as much, but nature is to be that which glorifies God. So you have that Psalm 148 divided into two parts, worship him from the heavens and worship him on earth. A very interesting division there. And so that one, I always think in this verse, because it, I sit in my porch pretty much every morning, and I look out there, you know, and in that verse, it's verse 10, it says, says it says, um, praise the Lord, um, all you small animals and flying birds. And so in my backyard, there are squirrels, and there are cats, and we have a bird, two bird feeders, there are birds, and so worship him. They are to be giving glory in the way they're made to give glory to God. But here we're talking about people. He's talking about seeking worshipers for himself. And this is important to understand. When you think about God's purpose, you can say, oh, God wants to save people, but why does God want to save people so they worship him? That's number one. That's ultimate. That's the most important thing. God seeks worshipers, okay? That's, that's, that's what this what text is, is saying here. And, and you go to Psalm 145 to 150, called the Hallel, H-L-H-A-L-L-E-L Psalms, are the praise psalms, and it's just really good. And as our, our family, I think I can probably say this, we like Psalm 145. If, you, if we were to pull our family, uh, that's probably one of our favorites. It's just filled, and it's, it's praise uh, relative to who God is and to, to what he does. Again, the point is God deserves to be worshipped. He should be worshipped. We should worship him every day of our lives. That first song that we sang, enter his gates with thanksgiving and praise, should be what we do. And if we aren't worshipping God by song and by thanksgiving and praise, 
on an active, daily basis, then there's a great deficiency in our lives. I, I say that. You must think about that. So, so important that we are ones who are worshiping. This is what he seeks. This is what he wants. And, of course, when we put him first and we worship him, then we will be fulfilled. The more you worship God, the more you love the Lord, the more you honor him and thank him, the more, than God will, the more God will then supercharge and encourage your own heart and soul. That will happen. It's not just some empty experience. It's, it's a wonderful experience actively worshiping the Lord. So this should be our purpose in life. And there's three little subset points here. One is we, our purpose should be to worship God ourselves. Number two, we should be encouraging and praying for other believers and Christians, this church to be a worshiping church. And thirdly, we should be praying for the lost to get saved so that more people will worship him. So that's a, it's a simple way to break down life, worshiping God ourselves, helping others worship him, and praying for the lost that they then would worship him too. Next point on Worship, and again, there's a lot here, and it's a pretty extensive subject, but just summing up points. God wants people to worship the Father. You notice in these verses that, 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 that Jesus didn't say he wanted people to worship him. But we all know, we're all smart enough to know that, yes, Jesus should be worshiped as well. It's just that in his humility, he didn't say that here. His ultimate desire, his ultimate desire and purpose when he was on earth was for the Father then to be worshipped. That, that's what he really wanted. His, that was it. John 17, we'll go there again. John 17, 1 to 5, important text in this, this uh, uh, point here. John 17, 1 to 5. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Very important point, that last point there. So Jesus wanted wanted to be glorified so that the Father would be glorified. And, and one of the main ways that was going to happen, as we read there in verse 5, is, is by Jesus then doing the work that God wanted him to do, particularly the work of saving people, okay? And that resulted in Father getting more and more glory. You know the verses in Philippians 2, uh, really it's 5 through 11, 6 through 11, but, it, but it's talking there, verses 6 through 8, primarily about Jesus' work and saving us became he was God, but he came man and dwelt among us. He you know, obeyed the Lord, dying on the cross. But then what does it say, verses 9 and 11? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Then what? What's the last phrase? To the glory of God the Father. That's it. So, so it says it again, and it's different places. Well, you can read that. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 20 to 28 is an interesting section of verses that refer to the same point here. So finally then, people can be described as ones who worship God or ones who don't worship God. The unsaved, unbelievers in general are people who don't worship God. They worship the creatures. They worship the creation. They do not, do not work to worship the creator. They don't love God, but instead love themselves. They love people. They love and I mean, I'm saying we ought to love people, but they put people first. They don't put God first. They love people in a wrong way. They love animals. They love possessions. They love money and things. Turn to Second Timothy chapter 3, which I believe explains this and summarizes this about as good as any. Romans, Romans chapter 1 does as well, but we've been there quite a few times. But those verses 20, 18 through on to the end of the chapter, really. Second Timothy chapter 3. 
verses 2 to 4, talking about people in the world who don't worship God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2, verse 2, two Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than, bottom line, lovers of God. So you talk about problems in a person's life. Why are there problems in the world? People aren't loving God. People aren't worshiping God. That's, that's what we can say pretty simply. We, we all hear about the problems and the wars. We all know about this stuff. And there's all kinds of problems. And sometimes it gets tired of hearing these problems. And my wife talked about this because I can handle the news a little better than her, if I can say it that way, um, because we get tired. Man, this is the same old stuff. Why? People have rejected God. They do not love God. They do not worship him. Next thing we need to understand, this is the next major point, moving on from worship here, is this point. Doing God's will energizes us and sustains us. Jesus was, was talking to this lady, to this woman. We know that he was tired, and, and I'm sure there's a lot in his mind. There's a lot that he was thinking about doing. I mean, his mind, I'm sure, was not just still. It was a lot there. So how did he keep going? How did he keep doing what God wanted him to do? Turn back to John I just want to read this portion, this part again. John chapter 4, verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus said, then he goes on to say he had food to eat that, 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 that no one knew about. His food wasn't physical food. Now let me just mention a point here. Jesus had a relationship with his Father, and of course he had a relationship with the Holy Spirit. It was these relationships that he had that really helped to sustain him and to strengthen him and to keep him going. Just like we would say your relationship with your Heavenly Father, that keeps you going. The same true for Jesus here. Deuteronomy 8, verses 3, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus' food was his relationship with his father, and this relationship would include the words of his father, okay? You understand that? If you have a relationship with someone, there's communication. Words are being spoken back and forth. You all know that. I, I, I can't help but think that, that in your life, all of you have had good conversations with people, right, at times. Not all the time, but sometimes. Maybe hope more often than not. And those conversations are, are encouraging, are building are helpful. We have back here what's called the fellowship hall. In the fellowship hall, there should be what? Fellowship. Of course, we have food, but there should be. The idea is fellowship. It's a good name for our little hall. Fellowship hall, because fellowship is the spiritual communication back and forth between believers that is very encouraging and helpful and strengthening. So we're talking about relationships. Jesus then was, was, was encouraged by his relationship with his father. He was hearing the words of his father. And when you go through the Gospel of John, and I'm not going to do it here, but there's so many different places where the father told me this, and I did what the father said, and I don't do anything but what the father tells me to do. So they had this relationship, and he was hearing the words of his father, and these weren't just empty words, just words on a piece of paper. They were the very words of his father. They were true words and, and, and loving words and powerful words, words that sustained him and strengthened him. That's the point. And for us then... 
we need to, just in a, a corollary here, we need to two feet on God's word, to meditate on God's word, to chew on it, to really think about it. There, there's no doubt, and I've said this before, and maybe sometimes you have a little message on this point on meditation, but that the more you meditate on God's word, the more you feed on God's word. That is, the more you think deeply about God's word, chew on it and digest it in your heart and your soul, then the more you'll be an encouraged person. Okay, so God's word is your food as well. And it's, it's the means then by which we can live and do what God wants us to do. I mean, there is no doubt, and I could say with all my heart that if I didn't have the word of God, I'd be worthless. I need the Word of God. I need the Word of God every day. That's why I get out in that porch every day, and I sit in that little rocking chair, and I have my Bible there and a piece of paper, and I read the Word and pray. That's what I do, okay? It sustains me. It's a fact, yesterday, this isn't <clears throat> yesterday before. <clears throat> Usually, I've been through the Bible a few times, and you sort of feel like you know every verse, but, you know, pretty often I read, man, I didn't ever see that verse before. So the verse, a new verse yesterday. That I got. I mean, again, it wasn't new, but I just first time saw it. But this is the verse, and so I memorized it because it's so encouraging. It says Psalm thirty-seven, eighteen. It says, "says The blessed spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance endures forever." Isn't that good? The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance endures forever. So that verse helped me. And it's the same kind of verses as Psalm 23, 16, 23, 6, you know, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and then I'll dwell in the house of the lover. Same thing. Days now, and then there's forever. That is our life. So I just want to encourage you with that very important of God's word in you. One aspect of these words, this communication that God had with the Father, was that his, was father, related to his Father's will for him, that God, his Father, had a purpose for him. God, his Father, had work for him to do. And so Jesus has this perfect, super close relationship with his Father, and the Father tells him what to do, and Jesus loves to do it. He wants to do it. It says in John eight twenty nine, I always do the things that please him. Now, all of you have had experience where somebody told you something to do. You didn't really want to do it for whatever reason. But Jesus, when his father told him to do something, he wanted to do it. He was excited. He was thrilled to fulfill his father's will. And so God's purpose for Jesus, his purpose now, we're talking about not just the words of God, but the purpose of God was food for him. And what Jesus, what, what, what the father tells Jesus then is, is, is that which really motivates and encourages Jesus. Jesus then is driven and is determined to do exactly what his father wanted him to do and everything his father wanted him to do. So you have to see that. that that's how he lived his life. Every day the father, and through the work of the spirit, they were in communication together. And Jesus, of course, wanted to do his will. Psalm 40 might be prophetic. Verse 9, it says, says the psalmist, but of Jesus, I delight to do thy will, O God. That should be our hearts as well. So Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And Jesus then wanted to do his father's work, but also then to finish it, to complete it. The verse we already read here, John 17, 4, which is one of my life verses, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Completing the work you gave me to do. So that's what we need to think about our lives. That's how Jesus thought about his life. And so each of us then should have a, a, a close 
relationship with God, whereby then we are motivated by what he says to us and what he tells us to do. And knowing that God has you on this earth to fulfill his purpose, to do his will, and to complete it then should be that which motivates you and energizes you and encourages you and excites you and supercharges your own heart and soul. That's the way it should be. Let's turn to Acts 20. I've read this verse many times, but this, this verse, I believe, as much as any conveys the heart of Paul that was supercharged by the Lord and by the truth of God, and it sums up his, his, his purpose. He was driven um, by the love of the Lord, but also by the purpose that God had for him. It says in verse 24, Acts 20, 24, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And there's other words. You go back to Acts chapter 9 Acts chapter 26. Both talk about the purpose that God for him and how God revealed himself to him. You know, he's on the horse and got knocked off his horse, you know, and the Lord spoke to him. Hey, this is my purpose for you. So Paul had this in his mind, this purpose then that, that, that he knew the Father wanted him to accomplish. Back to John chapter 4. Last couple points of this chapter here. John uh, 4. Um, Jesus was... was, was was reaping a harvest. And, 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 and what do these verses say about reaping a harvest? Just a few points here I want to say. First of all, is, is Jesus was motivated by the words of his Father to work, but he's also motivated by the words of his Father to reap a harvest. And, and we should be motivated this, this way as well, as well. As long as we're on this earth, there is a harvest to reap. It may be a small harvest, Maybe a large harvest, but until the end of this age, there is always, until the Lord comes back on that day, there will always be a harvest. Again, maybe small, very small, maybe medium-sized or larger. The illustration, back on December 19th, you might have met him or seen him, but an individual named Kurt and Brenda Short, he's only like five, six, his wife was five, four, but he's been a pastor of a church in Cedar Rapids for 30 years, and he, we were talking uh, here, but then more in the fellowship hall, about what he had just decided to do. He'd been a church, again, pastor for 30 years in this church. He says, I'm not going to be pastor anymore. And in his research study, he found out that probably one of the places in the world where there's more going for the gospel, that is a lot of fruit being born, was a place in northern India. And he had somehow connected with this pastor, this Christian leader over there, an Indian leader, and Kurt's very much of a theologian-type person and loves to write. So he, he sort of contracted with this guy from India to be a writer to write theologies, books, to help train the men. So, so he's not going over there so much. He'll probably go once or twice a year. But his vision, man, I want to I be where the action's at. Now, this doesn't mean I'm leaving here. I'm staying here. That's my plan. But the point is, understand Things in this country are pretty slow for the gospel in general. They are. People in this country are more hardened to the gospel than in the past, okay? There were times when, you know, you can go way back to the 1740 in the First Great Awakening, the early 1800s, the Second Great Awakening back in the 1860s, another awakening, different times, different awakenings. Back when I first became a Christian, early 70s, there was a small revival in this country of sorts, okay? Things are pretty slow. That does not mean there's not a harvest. I said there can be a small harvest and a big harvest, and Kurt Jurgensmeyer wants to go where the big harvest is at. We're here where it's more small. That's fine. God has us where he wants us to go. Second point, we talk about harvesting a crop. You have to have sowers. Uh, 
and reapers. Very simple. Once you plant a seed, and ones who reap the harvest. That's just the way it is. You all understand farmers. You have some take a farm. My both grandparents, grandfathers were farmers. You plant corn in in uh, April, and you harvest the corn in uh, October. You plant the soybeans in May. You harvest them typically in September. So you plant the seed and you harvest. But the context, the emphasis in this passage is not on being sowers. It's being reapers. That's what it says. That, 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 that's, that's, that's one of the points here. And yes, you may sow God's word, but not reap right away. That, that's what we're saying. But God wants you, and the point here, is to have the mind of a reaper. He says, God, I want to be one who is reaping. That's what I want to do. I want to be a reaper and believe that way and pray that way. I mean, y'all have friends that, that, that aren't saved, or people that you know, right, that aren't saved, and they've heard the word of God, the seed's been sown, but they're not saved yet. Well, just keep praying for that person. If God gives you opportunity to share something, just as the Lord leads, keep going. Persevere that God that God might allow you then to be a reaper. That's the point. I mean, y'all, this, this point's so simple. You plant a seed, you reap the crop that same day. I just mentioned corn. It's a six-month thing. I mentioned the soybeans. It's a four-month thing. I mean, when I plant my okra, I want to do it probably this week. It's going to be another four to five weeks before I reap some okra. It just takes the time. So there's reapers and sowers. The point here is in this text, he's emphasizing the point of being a reaper, and God wants us to have that, that mindset as well. That, next, he talks about eternal fruit, an interesting way to say it, but it's a good way to say it. There's eternal fruit, which means the lives of people who get saved, who receive eternal life, then are eternal fruit. They're ones who are eternally blessed, have eternal relationship with God, and ones who then are eternal worshipers of God, this eternal fruit. Final point is this, is when you work for God, you receive wages. Very interesting. We, we, we mentioned this. I, I, this is definitely sometime in the next, I don't know, four, five, six, seven, eight months, I want to talk about rewards. This is that point about rewards. There's eternal wages. You all understand jobs. If you work at a job, you get paid, right? You work for the Lord, there's heavenly wages, eternal wages, there's, there's eternal rewards. Colossians 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Many verses. It's, it's, it's an untaught subject. I'm I just shocked that I haven't taught on it yet, but I plan to sometime this year. And it's, it, it really, it, to be honest, it's, it's life-changing. It is life-changing when you really understand uh, what he says and all that he says about that, that subject. Now, as a church, each of you have a job to do. This passage we read about reapers and sowers. And so we're to be then, as a church, teaming together to work for the Lord. No jealousy, no competition, but this divine teamwork. And if there is fruit, if there is victories, if there's success, then we all worship, we all rejoice, we all thank the Lord together. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3. Probably says this as good as any section. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses verse 5. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5 says, What then is Apollos, what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one, one who waters anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, 
but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So very simple. People plant, people water, and, and you're going through life, and God wants to use you. So you have to think about this. Here's an unbeliever. How are you going to be one who affects his life? Not that we know if he's going to get saved or not, but again, God wants to have the mindset of, hey, I want to be a reaper. I want to see people's lives affected for the Lord. The final point, and there's a total of 14 points in this whole two-week section. My notes are back there. You can get them. And I don't know if we have notes from last week, but this week are there. The final point, the testimony of the woman was believed. The testimony, woman's testimony, along with the testimony of Jesus, had supernatural and eternal results. It really was a mini-revival in this town where this woman lived. But John chapter 4, verse 39 spells this out. John 4, 39. Verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him, in Jesus, because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I've done. See what it says? Because of the a woman who testified. So God used her testimony. The, the point here is very simple, and, and we could, again, spend a whole message on this point right here, and maybe we should sometime is your testimony. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you each have a testimony. A testimony is a story, a story of how God was, was working in your life and how then God brought you to salvation. That's what it is. Just this morning I was reading uh, in, in, in uh, Zion's Hope, that's Marv's magazine. Marv passed away, of course, but their magazine, and it has a story about Alina Theodore. Alina Theodore's husband, John, just passed away suddenly last year from COVID. Really tragic. Well, God's in charge, of course, but it was sad. But Alina's testimony is there. She was born in Russia. She was a Russian Jew, and it goes through how she was saved. I only got through part way, but it's encouraging reading this testimony about this Alina. And, and, and the thing I want to say is this, is that, is that when you're with one another uh, or anybody that you know is a Christian, you will share your testimonies. Or ask them, well, how, what is your testimony? How did you get saved? Because, and that's good for a couple things. One is it helps them to articulate it more clearly, but also you can be encouraged as you hear the testimony. And we see here the example of this woman. You have a testimony about what God has done. And, and it's important, if you've not done this, and I, I, I can't help but think you all have to some degree, is go back to when you before you were saved and what happened in the, in the year or the two or the three years before you got What were the things that happened? How was God drawing you to himself? How were you understanding the gospel and who Jesus was and how you were a sinner and what he did and all these things? That, that, that's important, your testimony. And so and God wants to use it. That, that's the idea. That's the very important point here. God wants to use your testimony. But I want to sum up with a formula. Um, this is a, just thought of this here. I, I, I love formulas. I'm a math person, so... So we want fruit. Again, there's many other aspects. I just picked out some of the basic things. You're talking about fruit. You're talking about affecting a person's life. How can you affect them? Okay, there's four elements. It's L plus T plus G plus S equals F. Okay, got it? L plus T plus G plus S equals F. L is love. When you're with people, you love them. Second thing is, when you're with people, you share your testimony. Third thing with people is you share the gospel. The fourth thing is you trust God and you pray to God and ask the Holy Spirit to be working in their heart. Your love plus testimony plus the gospel 
plus the Spirit of God working, that results in fruit. That's the point. That's not on those notes back there, so if you want to write those down, that's my little thing. But you could, there's more you could say, but I just wanted to share that because we're talking about the importance of, of testimony, uh, but there's other elements that are part of this whole equation in terms of what God's doing in the work of a person's heart. So that's it for today. We'll continue on this theme next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time you've given us. Thank you for your word, your truth. Indeed, you are so loving and so kind to give us your word. And we have Bibles, and in some places people don't even have Bibles. I think of Ukraine, and I, I can't help but think there's Christians that are thinking, man, I, I had a Bible, but, but I don't have it anymore. Or whatever happened, they lost it, and they would love the word of God. And I would even pray that, God, your word, your Bibles even are being distributed over there in that tour war-torn country, Lord, and do pray for those people, God, that you'd help those saved, help those, Lord, who, 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 who know you, Lord, just encourage them and use them, and the, the pastors too, Lord, and the leaders, and, and pray for people to turn to you, Lord, that people would be ones who see that, hey, uh, as it says in Luke 12, it's, the, 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 it's not so much what somebody can do to you physically killing you, uh, but it's rather that the Lord, if you don't know him, that you'll be apart from him forever and ever that he can, as it says there so, so graphically and strongly, that he can kill the body and then cast him into hell. And that is the truth. And so, Lord, help us to see this big picture, understand this. But just thank you again for each one here. Might we be ones who are sobered up, serious-minded, Lord, not just going through life and, and, and just picking up a little sticks, so to speak. Lord, help us to see the gravity of our lives, the importance of it. I'm not trying to get people bummed out here, Lord, but, boy, we need to be sobered up. We need to be ones who are serious about you and our lives and what you have us here for and that we want to be ones who use every day of our life for your purposes and for your glory, to have the heart and energy that Paul had. And of course, we saw that Jesus had, that David had, so many other examples in the Bible that are given to us. But thank you for this church. Lead us, God. Protect us. Feed us, Lord, with your word. Encourage us, God, by the work of your spirit. We pray that. Pray that more and more we'll be filled up with the spirit, empowered by the spirit, led by the spirit and doing the work of God, doing the work of Christ, doing the work of the Spirit. But thank you, Lord, for this time for everyone here to pray for your protection, your blessing, Lord. Once you couldn't be here today, once you're watching online, Lord, we ask you for that too, and pray that this message that's going out would, would have an effect in different states and even countries around the world, Lord. You multiply this message for your glory. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.